I have to be um, respectful because an editor has popped into the music library. Robin Murray is not just a Scot, and I respect all Scots, uh, but the editor of Clash magazine. The new issue is out now, issue 122, priced at seven ninety nine. Um, are the hats selling well this month? The hats, are, they are flying off the shelves. Yeah, I'd expect so. Um, they look wonderful, even though they are black, so will absorb the heat. But if you want to proclaim your love for Clash magazine, um, then you can. So... It's it's all things to all people, Clash. Uh, how long have you been editor and has your editorial uh, reign of, of terror been terrible or great? Uh, the, the Game of Thrones-esque reign of terror that has been my editorship. No, I'm joking. Um, kind of a long story to me and my relationship with Clash and that I joined as an intern in August 2007, Ooh. which means it's 15 years next month. So we're trying to organise some form of celebration with the team for that, maybe work for a meal or something. So yeah, I joined as an intern initially for two weeks in 2007. At the time, we had one office in Dundee in Scotland, where the magazine was started, and there was one in London. I just graduated from Dundee, so I joined as an intern and stayed ever since, which is quite remarkable, really. I think 15 years is very lucky for a career in, in music writing, so I definitely count myself very fortunate in that regard. The founding editor was Simon Harper, and he decided to leave in January 2020. Clearly, he must have had a feeling in his in his bones Friends in China. That, that something wasn't gonna wasn't gonna go right in the couple of subsequent years. So Simon stepped down in January 2020, and obviously COVID happened, and that was a huge shock to the music economy, and we lost a number of people. And I emerged from it as the editor and the sole full time editorial employee of Clash. So no pressure. But we've managed to, I think, weather it. Me and the creative director, Rob Myers, have very quickly formed a team. Um, We've brought in a number of freelance people to assist. Um, We've remained in print. We're a quarterly magazine. And alongside that, we have the website, classmusic.com, which has very regular updates from news to features to reviews, uh, regular mix series. And alongside that, we're extending outwards into video and that could be long-form videos such as documentaries or our newly launched TikTok channel. Um, and we're going to relaunch an event strand later this year as well and get back out there. That's wicked. You didn't mention the three Spotify playlists, Astral Realm, music that goes beyond the mainstream, Next Wave, uh, which is a very hipster. It's far too hip for me. And UK ah. rap, Free Flow, which is hard to say uh, when you're sober. But what a great... Ah product uh, a great website and whose idea was this kind of four covers well the magazine used to be monthly the audience for magazine has changed i think people like to keep them as collectors there's still a magazine audience there but i think much like vinyl it's not going to be the number one de facto format again for music lovers that's streaming because it's easy so i think for reading about music people go to websites and social media in order to have that debate but there's still room for a print product we feel so the movement was away from having 12 covers, one per month, and towards having like four coffee table almanac editions that would have four covers. Um, so we make it more collectible for fans. They can collect each edition if they want. It gives us more flexibility in terms of actually commissioning. And then, yeah, it's, it's just a great way of giving scope to all the different strands of what we do. Clash, the name, was initially picked for a number of reasons, but one of those was that we wanted opposing elements to clash together. 
And I think that's what we want to do with genres. Um, the latest issue has Red Hot Chili Peppers, you know, a rock group, and Pop Can, a reggae icon, Jackson Wang, who's an Asian pop star, and Suki Waterhouse, who's model, actress, amazing songwriter, just released a new album on Sub Pop. So we want to be as we just thrive on the natural diversity of the way that people listen to music in the twenty first century. And this being the music library, every issue with every almanac cover is there. So the music library, uh, I, I spoke to you a long time ago about my football library. I'm fed up with football. Yeah. Uh, I think football at the elite level is corrupt and contemptible. But music, on the other hand, <laughs> um, yeah. uh, but issue issue 122 onwards to the next issue, uh, theclashshop.com is where you can find everything. Clashmusic.com is the website. Now, I was in Edinburgh. In 2007, I was head of music at Fresh Air, the Edinburgh Number. University station. You may know people who have come out of Fresh Air. A number of our writers have been through Edinburgh University, yeah. Magnificent. Former, former educator, Lizzie Martin, was an Edinburgh University student, and there's a few others I can name off the top of my head. It's lovely to see everyone's back catalogue online. Yours uh, includes a band whose impish charm you loved. It must be incredible to watch the rise and rise of Wet Leg, two girls from the Isle of Wight, who are Britain's biggest rock band at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, they're amazing. Um, just very lovely, down-to-earth people who've been making music for a long time, and then suddenly it's clicked over the past 12 to 18 months. It is, it's just remarkable. You wonder how far they can take it. But I think, you know, they sell out very good venues for the debut album. The debut album's got number one. They both stream well and sell vinyl. They've really just cracked it. So they, they can reach a lot of different people, which is just pretty key. And they do it through fantastic songwriting. And also, they've had a hit. Uh, this, uh, is it the, not the Shades Long, the other one, the other big hit with two words in the title? Is it Wet Dream? Yeah. They are a unicorn because there are a total of one rock band currently in the top 40, if you discount Harry Styles and various solo acts, it's just Glass Animals, which is essentially yeah. a solo project by Dave Bailey. So yeah. rock is not a chart genre, unless you can say the contrary. Rock is, I've been calling it a heritage genre, and yet some of the most exciting music in Britain is rock-based. I think that's true, yeah. That's a, a remarkable difference between the album charts and the singles charts. You look at the albums charts and a band like Fontaine's DC can chart highly and make a big impression, but in terms of singles, probably not. Uh, I remember a very interesting interview with Blossoms just before the headlines, Castlefield Bowl um, in Manchester, and they can sell thousands and thousands of tickets, they can sell thousands and thousands of copies of vinyl, but you can never crack the singles chart, mm. which is a really weird thing. And also... Blossoms are a Manchester band. Are we moving back to the localised rock spheres, uh, albeit there are no big venues, but someone like Sam Fender, he'll get free beer for the rest of his life in a 10-mile radius of St James's Park. Nah, I, I think he will. I saw Sam Fender at the Finchley Park on Friday night and there was a lot of Newcastle United tops in the audience, which is it's great to see. Now, there's a lot to be said for local loyalty. Someone else that you could name would be Jerry Cinnamon from Glasgow who headlined and sold out two nights at Hamden Stadium Amazing. all on his own, him and his acoustic guitar, which is incredible. Um, I think people want to see representation. They want to see themselves on stage. 
and there's a lot to be said for seeing your life lived out through those songs. I think it, Sam Fender really touches people with his music and what he talks about. Sam Fender, one of the most important acts of the era because he puts his life in songs. So he's almost a country act. The comparisons with Bruce Springsteen are lazy, but it wouldn't surprise me if Sam Fender supported Bruce if he does, if Bruce does support slots. I don't think he does. But mm. next year, Bruce Springsteen is playing Hyde Park. This summer, you've already, well, you've saved about £1,000. Rolling Stones, yeah. Killers, Elton, Adele, and Ed Sheeran, uh, you looked around and saw hen parties and families. Mm. Well, I, I was speaking with uh, Stevie Chick about the awfulness of Glastonbury and the big gig. Have you had to kind of suck it up and you realise that summer is all about the field and the festival, not the 200 sweaty people in a room? I have room for both those things in my life, I think. I love those independent venues. Um, I love the community that exists around them. I think that's fantastic. I DJ a lot at the Night Owl in North London, which is like a soul-themed bar that does live events as well. And it is fantastic. It's acted as a real hub for kind of 60s subcultures that exist in London and beyond. But I do have room in my life for the big stadium shows as well. If the production is there, it's just dazzling. It's fireworks. It's something that you can kind of switch off and enjoy. I mean, something like Ed Sheeran, the cut-through, that you can go to Alaska and go into a bar and Shape of You will be playing, and you can go to Bradford and go into a bar and Shape of You will be playing. Because I think is is remarkable. There's a gift to that, even if his music isn't personally my my cuppa. But um, I would say that yeah, you kind of do have to admire someone who can speak to to people so intimately on that level. Yeah, stadium busking is someone brilliantly <laughs> described him as. I, don't, I, I wish I could remember who it was. Probably someone like Paul Morley. Clash Robin is your Twitter feed. Uh, you are gaining on the 86,000 people who follow the magazine that you edit. I've, I remembered the other day that I loved Pat Long's book, The History of the Enemy, and you referenced it as yes. one of the books that you'd love to read. It, it's time has passed, but even when I was a student, the enemy was still impactful because it wrote about the personalities. Um, so the, there's two questions here. Where are the journalists with personalities to match the Morleys, the Charlie Murrays, the Nick Kents, the Julie Burchills, the Catelyn Morans? Uh, and two, where are the Pete Doherty's in the music industry who are being written about in the music press? Yeah, well, I would agree. Paolo's book, History of Enemies, is superb. It's a real love letter to the music press. I'd recommend anyone listening to take out a copy and read it. I think sometimes books about the music press can be a bit worthy and self-referential but I think Pat Long's book is, is just done with a lot of heart and that's where a lot of the best music writing comes from in regards to great music writing these days with these big iconic figures I do wonder if there is more music writing now and that's what means that's what allows these things to dissipate so much and it's harder to cut through the noise in the same way that there's a lot more music these days and it makes it more difficult to cut through the noise as well. If you think back to the Charlie Murrays and the Julie Burchells, the Tony Parsons, the Paul Morleys of the world, there was only really four or five inkies and then you know a huge number of fanzines that were a lot smaller. But that meant that everything they said had real impact because there was no other way of finding out or shaping opinion at that time, whereas now broadsheets cover music of the arts uh, very regularly. 
there's remains, I think, quite a lot of magazines. A lot of them are free rather than being on the newsagent shelves. Uh, so I think that makes it harder. There are a number of excellent writers who I look out for, for sure. Um, I think Hannah Ewan's at Rolling Stone UK has done an amazing job. I think Crack regularly has excellent music writing. Um, there's a writer called Robert Kazanjian who works a lot with Noisy and has written for Clash before, who I think is able to discuss UK rap and underground cultures there in a way that's very sympathetic and allows those artists to speak truly. So I think there is a lot of, of big characters, but everything changes really. And it dep- really depends on how you find those those big characters. Is it people who live in the totemic titles of old or is it people who are a bit more flexible and, and bob around upon the, the internet airwaves? I'm not sure. You've spoken to Lizzo and we're talking in the week that Lizzo has finally released her fourth album, the second one that has any has had a big traction outside of kind of Minneapolis hip-hop and Lauren Laverne. But Lizzo is a fascinating figure because she's like a Beyonce for the plus-sized girl and that music is like fourth down on her priority list in the way that Rihanna hasn't put out an album for seven years. No one is waiting for a Lizzo album because there's Lizzo TV, Lizzo magazines. When you met her, was she conscious of what she was going to get up to in the next five years? It was very driven. I think when we spoke, that was really at the start of her ascent with Cause I Love You and then with the touring. I think live and her personality has obviously been a big factor in the way that she's connected to the world. I think it was always obvious that she was a very driven and ambitious person. And you can see that even on the first few records that didn't actually connect in the same way. Because she was moving through styles. She was moving through different disciplines and ways of approaching music until she worked out that she needed all of those really to help her click, including the flute, which she plays live on stage. With some artists, you are right, definitely, that when the personality comes to the fore, they then can translate into different mediums. In this country, Big Zoo would be an example. He's recently won two BAFTAs, but really he started out as a grime artist. And when he was on stage, his personality was the big thing. It wasn't so much the music. He was always just a gripping person to to watch for an evening. Lizzo's been very driven. Do I think that people are desperately waiting for new Lizzo music? Perhaps, but maybe it's just in a, a streaming track-based audience rather than uh, an, an album statement. And it's interesting how little flute there is on this new album. I don't know if you've heard it yet. I think there's about two and a half bars of flute. I think live it'll be a completely different beast, but um, Interscope have to earn back some money with her. And when you get to that level, you're, you're earning back money. The type of music that you deal in even though you've been reviewing all these big, big bands and big, big acts, um, you spoke to Jeff Tweedy of Wilco. I think like Radiohead, Wilco have hit a kind of ceiling. There will be no one who will become a Wilco fan now. No one else will become a Radiohead fan because of any new material that Tom York or Jeff Tweedy might release. But these are totemic figures of alternative music who have always been there. Yeah, I think that's fair. And one of the things as well is that Wilco are on a run right now, I feel mirroring almost low who are near contemporaries. Mm-hmm. In a, the current low record and the current, current Wilco record probably rank as, as some of their best work. And I feel that like if they were new bands, and you're quite right in that, if they were new bands on album number three and they suddenly 
produce the work that they're doing now, there would be a shell shock. You would think, who is this incredible band? But because we almost take these people for granted, obviously Jeff Tweedy's going to make a great record. He always makes great records. He never makes bad ones. It's always at least an 8 out of 10. You know what you're going to get. I think that's probably the reason why we take them for granted a little bit. Um, but perhaps we should cherish them. I don't know. It could be one of these things that all of a sudden there are no willful records. Maybe he goes and lives in a commune somewhere and you never hear from him again and you wonder why there are no willful records in the world. Perhaps we need to detune ourselves from the influence of the past and, and fully absorb the special music that's happening right in front of us. Ooh, that's difficult to do when you've got Metallica and Kate Bush in the top 20 of the pop charts, which is yeah, a whole uh, different kettle. I was going to ask, who are the Clash bands? If, if certain acts are NME bands... Is there such a thing as a clash band who owe their rise to coverage on the site and in the magazine? We've done a number of firsts, to be fair. In the 1975's first cover was with Clash. Stormzy's first cover was with Clash. Um, one of the first Georgia Smith covers was with Clash. Uh, Rina Sawayama's wow. first cover was with Clash. Um, so there are a number of firsts, a number of people who have cited us as factor in the rise. I remember we gave one of Alt-G their very first print features and they have always been very respectful of that and the fact they took a chance on them and they felt as though that was one of the moments when they realised things were turning in their favour. Um, so yeah, there are a number of people like that. I think we have, a, obviously you mentioned the, the playlist and we have a Next Wave playlist which is new music focused. Uh, so we do use the website as a means and social channels and streaming platforms as a means to really amplify new artists, uh, which I think we're going to do every day, to be fair. And then obviously in the magazine, there's a a printed next wave section that happens every issue. Um, So yeah, I think we're always looking ahead and looking forwards and trying to see what's new. Are you able to tell me whom you've put on the cover of the next issue, the autumn issue? It's still been shot, to be fair. There are a couple that uh, have been done already that we're very excited about. It will be varied, as always. Um, we like to throw a few cur- curveballs in there, so there could yet be one curveball that lands. But yeah, keep them peeled. Yeah, I'll certainly pick it up. Theclashshop.com and clashmusic.com. And if you type Robin Murray's name into the search bar, you get about 700 pieces of journalism dating back to 2009. Um, I didn't look for any coverage of this excellent book, Listen to This If You Love Great Music, uh, which came out on Ivy Press in 2021, didn't it? It was the middle of last year. It did, it did. That book, um, something that, again, was basically a lockdown project inadvertently, and I had it pitched to me to write a book, a primer on 100 essential albums that you need to listen to. And it was always designed to be a conversation starter. It was always designed to provoke arguments. What we really wanted to do was avoid the standard picks of Dylan and the Stones and the Smiths and these totemic albums and aim for something that's a bit more more modern, forward-facing, pop, hip-hop, rap, grime, drill, um, all these different genres. Um, And I think just about managed to do that. (laughs) It was a book that was started in the first week of January 2020 and it was finished in the first week of April 2020. So it was happening against the backdrop of extreme world chaos. Um, So the book became a nice way to tune out and focus on on things that were very close to my heart during that period. Uh, And it's available to buy now. It is. You you referenced the... um, 
the volume of posts. And funnily enough, we actually changed the entire coding system of the website um, last month going into this month. Um, we removed what's called the back end. And in that process, we were able to f- discover that I have posted at least 58,000 things on Clash since joining as an intern all those years ago, which is pretty crazy. Crikey. Your middle name is, well, in fact, your Twitter handle, Clash Robin. You have been wedded to this project. Uh, having graduated from the University of Dundee, I saw Franz Ferdinand uh, at the CED, and I thought the venue was like a school sports hall. I hope that doesn't denigrate it, but it felt very homely. And Franz Ferdinand were perfect for that venue because, of course, they wear ties and suits. I thought it was a great show. It's the first time and only time I've been to Dundee. Cool. I, I really like, uh, I like the CED Hall as a venue. Um, it's one of these places that used to be more on the gigging map in the 70s. There's a lot of very historic shows by Queen and The Who and huge, huge bands who played there. More recently, it's um, I think as the gigging circuit has actually decreased and people think a UK tour is London, Birmingham and Manchester, and that's it. There isn't quite so many shows there, but it's, it's a lovely venue, like you say. Dundee is kind of on the up now. They, they've put a lot of work into the centre of Dundee, um, sprucing it up a bit. Um, they've launched the V&A there, with a very ambitious building. Um, and I believe the Eden Project is going to be joining just yeah. down the road from there in a few years' time as well. So, yeah, it's great. It's a very cultural place. It's one of these cities that's got strong working-class heritage, but then alongside that has a very arty side to it. And I hope that there are many copies of your book, Listen to This If You Love Great Music, <laughs> floating around. Part of a series which I didn't know until today, um, the um, To This Look or the At This series. There's a book about photos, a book about art. Did you collaborate in any way with the guys working on the other books in the series? No, not directly. We were all aware of each other. We've been on email threads with each other. Um, And the publishers did a lot of the joining of the dots between us all. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was a very exciting thing to be involved in. I still get a massive thrill when I see it in bookshops. Um, I currently live in North London. My local bookshop was Owl Bookshop, and they stock a copy, which is brilliant. And you know, you can see it in Boyles and Waterstones. Holiday in Manchester last year, and they had it in the big Waterstones in the centre of Manchester. So it's a, it's a nice feeling to see it alongside authors that I really respect as well. And not just that, it is in the music library along with Jeff Tweedy's books, his memoir and his How to Write One Song book. Now, you come from a family of pipers and guitarists. Um, you wield a pen as your instrument. Um, but did you have you written a song? Have you taken Jeff Tweedy's advice on kind of blank verse and just making ideas and creating stuff? Or do you tend to like having a record or a gig to review, and that's your creativity itch scratched. Enjoy the creativity for sure of curating, writing. I love dealing with other young people and you know refining their viewpoints and helping open up these debates and then platforming these voices. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, no, there's other creative stuff that I enjoy doing for sure. I think when you're the editor of an independent title, it occupies a lot of emotional bandwidth and it can be hard to find both the time and the headspace to do other things. Um, I do enjoy playing the guitar. I used to play saxophone. Mm. Um, not so much anymore. So I've got a, a big love of jazz and blues as my heritage. 
And yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to do something again in the future. But um, for now, I think I'm focusing primarily on, on writing. It keeps me busy enough. What I love about books like Listen to This If You Love Great Music is that it's a gateway drug. I don't do drugs. Uh, I've realised I have music on all the time. I think that, that may be psychological and something for a shrink to, to do. But with this book, you, you pick all these albums and then you link to other albums and video and book and article. So really, you're kind of going to fly my pretties. That is a kind of subtitle of this book. Do you do that before we get into the book for about 10 minutes? When you're lecturing at the University of the Creative Arts down in Epsom, is, your reading list must be outrageous. Yeah. yeah, they've got a great library down there of archive music magazines, um, which I think the kids love going into. And yeah, no, it's, it's nice to be able to tip people off on, on different things. Um, as, as you say, culture is all interlinked. You can't really just listen to, well, I suppose you can just listen to a record and then enjoy it for its own merits. But I, I in particular, love delving a bit deeper and finding other people's opinions and, and, and linking all these things together, whether that's watching a documentary or or just reading an interview with the band or listening to a radio show that the band are on. You know, it, it's, it's nice to be able to be a bit part of a bigger tapestry. Yep, and it's all out there. There are so many fans of music and writers. We haven't got time to go into what I call Equality Act journalism. Uh, if I say that, do you know what that means? No, I don't. What do you mean? Um, well, this book has a section called It's OK to Not Be OK. And I think mental health is a protected characteristic under the Equality Act, as is race, gender, creed, sexuality um, and religion. So what we're seeing in music journalism since the Equality Act, and quite right too, is a decolonisation, a kind of hammering of the canon. Rolling Stone did it the other year and named Marvin Gaye's What's Going On as the best album ever. It isn't, but it suits what they're trying to say in this book listing all the albums were you aware that you're trying to open up and broaden the musical canon of the last 40 years to listeners i think that was definitely one of the points um in that there are a number of books already existing on the shelves that would direct people to go and listen to the stones and the beatles and the kinks and t-rex and bowie and, and all these people they're all fantastic artists but one of the things we wanted to do was highlight even for those artists because bowie is in the book is to highlight different areas of their catalogue to make people think again about what a classic album really is can something released last year be a classic well you know why not given that we shouldn't really have to wait 30 years to be affirmed something that we already know <laughs> Well, yeah, you have um, you have things called instant classics. I think to pimp a butterfly by any measure, because yeah. of what it did for the moment and how it. Actually, I won't spoil it. I'll just say that for me, what makes an album essential is it becomes part of a chain. It links back yeah. to the past and throws forward to the future. Which albums in your collection do you find off the top of your head do that? Uh, Nazalmatic is an amazing album. I think. Uh, yeah, to pimp a butterfly would be in there. Vince Staples self-titled would be in there. Um, Kanichiwa by Skepta would be in there. Um, Rounds by Forte would definitely yeah. be in there. Virtually everything by Aphex Twin I would probably put in there. <laughs> um, I think, you know, when you hear it, I think these things are very subjective as well. I love outliers. I love groups like Young Marble Giants or Life of Their Buildings who seem to not really be attached to anything but have this slow burn, really 
a stain on music and bands, more and more bands begin to discover them. I think a more recent example of that would be Fat White Family. Never had a hit record, but every band seems to sound like them. Every band they interview, new bands, cites them as an influence, whether that's because they like them or because they want to do something oppositional to Fat White Family. So I, I love the way that music kind of permeates and these streams and conduits can kind of link up over time. I don't know how early on you um, came up with this rubric, but there are 10 sections to the book. Uh, right first time, one-off wonders, slow burners, reinventions, political statements, sexuality, which deals with love and whoever you love. It's okay to not be okay. Music to fall asleep to, which I want to come back to. The soundtrack to your nightmares and going out with a bang. In- those are great track titles, by the way, because instantly I'm thinking, well, who is it? Who are they? Uh, right first time, DJ Shadow, Erica Badu, Missy Elliott, Daft Punk's Homework, which is not as good as Discovery, but um, (laughs) opened the way for... uh, Just because I've listened to Discovery more, but Homework is a wonderful piece of music. 25 years old this year. We can't do anything about age. Uh, But music to fall asleep to, that chimes with the use of music. People use music to psych themselves up, to burn calories, to fall asleep to. Um, so which are the albums in that? Um, Richie Sakamoto and his piano record is in there because I feel like what I was trying to say in that chapter is that music can lull you into different mood states, it can relax you, it can become like a bomb. And sometimes music isn't ordered as a physical structure in the way that, say, a song with the verse chorus verses. It can feel more like a perfume. And for someone like Richie Sakamoto, and Gruber is in that chapter as well. I think these are more kind of impressionistic in the way they approach things. These are more like pointless. These are suggesting things that might be there but might not. And they just act as this way of like breaking down a lot of the moods and emotions you're experiencing and then just allowing that to kind of dissolve. I think it becomes like, um, just yeah, it's just a real journey to go on with those albums that you can put on, drift off, and then it just allows you to transport to another mindscape. It's also because music is so personal, because we've got used to... Because in 1982, that was the first time you could stick earbuds in while walking down the street, listening to mm. a tape. You still had the boombox, but music has yeah. become more inward, whereas in orchestral music 150 years ago, you had to go to a concert hall and listen to whoever, Mahler, Wagner... Um, on the contrary, slow burners. I like the idea of an album that unwinds itself over time. So, slow burners is about people who take a while to achieve fame. It's about um, working in opposition to exploding on your debut album. It's about people who have to work extremely hard to get to that point. One example would be Sharon Van Etten, who at one point was working as a PR at a record label, promoting other people's music, whilst also working at her own. And she doesn't really find success about album three or four. Um, I think Lizzo is in that chapter as well, for reasons that we just discussed. Obviously, Pulp is the systemic example in this country of it, because they have famously the biggest gap between Peel sessions, because the first Peel session is recorded when they're awkward teenagers in the early 80s, a band coming down from Sheffield, have their big shot of fame, and then the next one is a band on the cusp of actually achieving that fame almost a decade later, after they'd signed to Island Records, um, and then His or Hers is coming out. Um, but I opted for 
different class, which is an amazing record really to them. So Stratosphere and I actually went down to Jarvis Cocker's exhibit in central London just recently. And he's got a new book out and he also recreated his teenage bedroom in an art gallery in central London. And it was fascinating to see how fully formed his artistic vision was at a very young age. Yeah, it was like a manifesto. And he tells the story in the book of that first peel session and pestering peel and giving in the tape and being awed Indeed, by yeah. yeah. It's and a lot of people used to play discos around the country, so he would follow them around and thrust demo tapes into his hand. As we guess, Pulp uh, and a slow burner of an act featuring in the book. Listen to this if you love great music and different class. Will, I think, grow and grow. If you're canonising that period between 1981 and 2020, um, more so than Oasis, it is crazy how Noel Gallagher's only written about five standards. If you look at the whole career, he's only written five songs that really everybody knows. Jarvis Cocker, probably three. And so when all these guys die, and not for a while, they're known for like 10 minutes of music. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, I mean, you could have a point there for sure. I think the other thing about Noel Gallagher is that his fame's running inverse to his brother who didn't write any of the songs. I mean, Liam's gone and sold out Nebworth all over again. I'm not sure if Noel could do that, no. but he's the guy who wrote all the songs. For some reason, Liam having the voice and the parka has, has managed to claim the Oasis audience, whereas Noel, despite having all the talent, is the one who's who's trundling along in his own lane. There is a very good review of Come On You Know, written by you, Robin Murray, at uh, Clash Music. And the, the, album, the new album is... It's a Liam Gallagher album. It's, oh, I see he's made his album. But he's got... A-list writers in and producers. There will never be another Oasis at Nebworth moment. Uh, it is crazy to note that Liam Gallagher is 50 in September. It is, it is. And he does use a lot of um, cool songwriters. It's a very hodgepodge record in many ways. that wears his influences on its sleeve. I think he's very good at speaking to his audience. But I think, like you mentioned earlier with Radiohead and Vocal, it's like that audience is finite. Like, I feel like... The Nebworth show is almost, um, that's it, capped now. I can't really see Leon extending beyond that. And really, all he's done is really rally and energising an existing audience rather than building a new one from scratch. Mm. But he hasn't yet gone out with a bang, which is what we must do. Uh, so take us out with one of the albums in the final chapter of this great book. Um, as a final album, Donuts by G. Dilla. Yes, um, very good. With a very moving backstory, some of which written in the hospital where he's been treated in um, for his long illness. Um, but one that shows someone refusing to go down easy, someone who is screaming against uh, the passing of the lights. Um, it's just a hugely creative record and one that really sums up his lingering impact on hip hop production, which you can see everywhere from the top 40 to albums like Pimple Butterfly. Um, he really just reshaped rhythm for the 21st century. And that's a record and a statement that I think is only going to increase in power as the time goes by. God, there speaks the editor of a quarterly music publication. Robin Murray, thank you so much. Uh, I must hear you do some DJing at uh, that Owl Club. Yeah. 